And so, Lord, we pray for tonight that you would just bless the teaching of your word as we take it in, in this wonderful section of scripture in Isaiah. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 40 of Isaiah, it's interesting because the Bible that you have in your hand has 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And the Old Testament contains 39 books, the New Testament 27 books. Well, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, and so there are many commentators that have called the book of Isaiah the mini-Bible. In other words, we just got through with chapter 39 last time, and as you go into chapter 40, from chapters 40 to chapter 66, the second half of the book of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters, we see that the the book of Isaiah kind of parallels what our Bible uh, does. In other words, that as we read the first 39 chapters that we finish, there's a lot of warning that we looked at, wasn't there? There was warning from the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel, that is the house of Israel and the house of Judah, concerning their sin and judgment that was going to come by the Assyrians. And there was also uh, that uh, warning that it would come eventually by the Babylonians. And, and so there was a lot of warning concerning that. And of course, keep in mind that when Moses brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai, that God made a covenant with them. And you know that covenant, that if you follow after me, then I'm going to bless you and protect you. But if you forsake me and go after idols, then you're going to be defeated by your enemies and go off into captivity. And this is a time where we see Isaiah comes on the scene that, that the house of Israel and the house of Judah are struggling with idol worship. They are struggling with drunkenness and, and with violence. All these things that were addressed as we saw in the first 39 chapters. So chapters 1 through 39 kind of parallels um, a lot of what you see in the Old Testament. Um, but as we move into chapter 40, the next 27 chapters uh, shifts predominantly to comforting and encouragement, and, and it parallels a lot what the New Testament is about. I want to say that oftentimes that Christians will, particularly as they're just starting to read the Bible, that they think that God has a different personality or character in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament he mellowed out. Now, it doesn't mean as we study the first 39 chapters that there wasn't words of encouragement and hope. Certainly there was. But you see that a lot of what is being told to them was concerning the judgment, concerning their sins. Um, and, and that's what we see in the Old Testament as a whole. And, and that's what they dealt with in their history. And what we're going to see in the next 27 chapters is Isaiah, who is, I think, Isaiah and David. Uh, of course, all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're so articulate as they give words of comfort and hope and, and blessing that we're going to see. And, and in the New Testament, of course, as we are under grace, we're so encouraged by that and the comfort that the Lord gives to us on this side of the cross and in the new covenant that we are under. But here's the thing to keep in mind. It wasn't like that God in the Old Testament was grumpy and judgmental. And sometimes we think, why was God so harsh in the Old Testament? And then it seems like he mellowed out in the New Testament, that Jesus is there running around, running interference, you know, saying, oh, please don't hurt them. 
we need to understand that, that God doesn't change. That Jesus said to Philip, remember in that upper room, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, Philip, you're saying, show us the Father that it may suffice us. If you want to know what the Father is like, then look at me. If you want to know what the heart of the Father is like, the character of the Father, then I am the perfect representation of the Father, as we know from Scripture. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to see as we finish the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. So God still is a God of grace. He's still a God of love and compassion that we see in the Old Testament. But we do see that God is dealing with his people and there would be judgment that would come to them as the house of Israel would be taken off into captivity. And then we're going to see, and a lot dealt with in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, that Isaiah is saying that the Assyrians are going to come, right? They're going to come and take you away captive. And then we ended in chapter 39 with God dealing Dealing with the Assyrians, as an angel came, they, the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. There, there was Shennacherib hurling all his threats towards Hezekiah. And the people of Jerusalem were going to wipe you out. Who's this God that you're telling the people to trust in Hezekiah? He can't save you. He can't save Jerusalem. Well, Shennacherib found out that the God of Israel is the true and living God that sent an angel to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So that's where we ended, looking at that story. And then also Hezekiah, who would receive in chapter 39 the, the ambassadors from Babylon. You recall that in, in chapters 37 and, and 38, that uh, particularly 38, that Hezekiah was sick and the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're going to die. And it, it was Hezekiah that prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, I'm going to extend your life 15 years. And Hezekiah asked for a sign. And the Lord said, I'm going to sit the, um, the sundial back 10 degrees. In other words, I'm going to lengthen the day. Just as I'm going to lengthen your life for 15 years, I'm going to lengthen the day. He turned the sundial back 10 degrees. God can do that. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And, and so that was the sign to Hezekiah. And by the way, one of the points that I did want to make last week is sometimes when we read God's promises, and Hezekiah had received the promise from the Lord that you're going to live another 15 years. And, and Hezekiah wanted that sign. And sometimes when we read the commands of the Lord, the word of God, that we say, Lord, I want a sign. I want a fleece. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I put out a fleece. It's like Gideon. Gideon had heard the command of the Lord that Gideon, there in the book of Judges, you're going to be the one that's going to lead the children of Israel against the mighty Midianites that had them in captivity for seven years. And Gideon, you know, he was the least of his family, his family the least uh, in his tribe, his tribe the least of all the tribes of Israel. So Gideon was having a hard time really believing God was going to use him in a mighty way. So he set out a fleece that had to do with sheepskin and whether it was dry or whether it was wet. And God would confirm what he had told him would happen, that I'm going to use you, Gideon. You see, here's the thing we need to be careful about. I want a sign. I want a fleece. When God gives his word, we can trust it. 
We don't have to just be putting out fleeces all the time and asking for signs. It doesn't mean that God won't give us a sign. He gave Hezekiah a sign. I'll, I'll turn the sundial back 10 degrees, but trust the word of God. And when the word of God tells us a command, gives us a promise, we can stand on it and know that it's true. So that's one of the points that I wanted to make last week. So here is Hezekiah, these ambassadors. Remember, this is about 700 BC. They come from Babylon, and they congratulate Hezekiah on being healed. And then Hezekiah showed them everything. Remember, all the treasuries in the house of the Lord, uh, as we read, uh, everything that was there, um, he showed them. There was nothing, it says here in verse 2 of the chapter, in the house and all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So Isaiah shows up, and he says, Hey, Hezekiah, who were those guys? Well, they're ambassadors from a faraway empire that's small called Babylon. Well, what do they want? Oh, they're just congratulating me on and getting better. Hezekiah, what did you show them? I showed them everything. I showed them all the gold and the silver and the treasuries in the house of the Lord. And as he was doing that, you know the, the ambassadors are recording all of that. Yeah, this is what they have. Because it was Isaiah, and I think Isaiah was uh, upset at Hezekiah. He said, Hezekiah, because you have done this, what's going to happen is the time's going to come when your young men are going to be taken off into captivity from Judah here, and they're going to come and take those treasuries away and the vessels away from the house of the Lord. But it's not going to happen in your day. And remember, we end it with the response of Hezekiah saying, well, at least I'll have peace in my day. I think Hezekiah, even though he was a good king and a godly king, and he sought the Lord, that he was being a bit selfish there. And he said, oh, okay, well, at least there's peace in my day. I'm not going to have to worry about what's going to happen in about 90 years, 95 years, when Daniel and those chief, you know, and, and young men of, of Judah, the choicest men of Judah, are going to be taken off to serve as eunuchs in the Babylonian government. They're going to go off into captivity. And Daniel, keep in mind, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys that were taken off into captivity, they're just teenagers taken away from their homeland, taken away from their, you know, parents, taken away from their families. And Hezekiah says, well, at least I'll have peace in my day. And I think that Hezekiah was being insensitive at that point to what was going to happen in the future. You know, one of the things that we've seen with Isaiah is Isaiah it was like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. We've seen that as Isaiah was given these warnings, that he was weeping in his heart, wasn't he? We've seen that very clearly. He was sad. He, he was concerned for the nation. And listen, you and I, as we think about the next generation, as we think about what's going on in our own nation, as, even as we pray tonight, we, we see the decline spiritually and morally what has taken place. It's getting more strange and, and darker and, and weird in our culture and in the world today as a whole. And especially we see it that it's all around us in our own na nation and we get concerned and it should cause us to weep. Was it, what is it going to be like for our children What's it going to be like for those, the next generation, that's going to be ministering in the church? 
And I don't want to ever come to the mindset and attitude of, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of finish up and that's it for me. Uh, hopefully there's going to be peace in my reign or as I minister. No, I'm concerned about the next generation. And we want to pray for them and we want to lift them up and love them and we want to equip them. Forever long the Lord tarries, they're going to need to be strong. And even as Jeremiah was really struggling in his day, he came after Isaiah. He was there when they went off into captivity. He's there in Jerusalem, and it was hard for Jeremiah. Jeremiah ministered for 40 years, and not one convert that we know of in Jeremiah's day. They came against him. It was very difficult. And, and Jeremiah at one point said, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's too difficult. And the Lord comes along and says, Jeremiah, if you can't keep up with the footmen, how are you going to be able to run with the horse? So we want to make sure that the next generation is well equipped with the word of God and strengthen them and to encourage them. So that's what we covered. So chapters 1 through 39 parallels a lot about um, the, the, old, uh, covenant, you know, the Old Testament books. But now we're going to see there's a shift, predominantly the comforting and encouraging and wonderful promises as we start in chapter 40 here. And we're going to see that a lot of what is going to be, any warning that is, is concerning Babylon that will be coming into the land about 100 years from this time and is going to take the house of Judah away captive. So let's begin to look at chapter 40 in verse 1. Comfort, that's a good Good way to start, isn't it? Comfort. Comfort, yes. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it starts out in a very wonderful way as we see that, um, that there's a message of comfort that is given there. And, and they're going to need comfort as they will go off into captivity of Babylon. They're going to need that comfort of the Lord. And Jeremiah, he gives that comfort as in that chapter, of course, 29, that many of you are familiar, familiar with, that Jeremiah was told to write a letter to the captives. There was the false prophets that were on the scene saying, you know, this captivity that you've gone off to, it's only going to last a couple years. Nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem, and you'll be back, and, and Babylon's going to fall, and God's going to deal with Babylon. And so Jeremiah was told, listen, you write to the captives that are off into Babylon and you tell them that they're to have children, to live peaceably in the land, plant gardens, because they're going to be there for a while. Matter of fact, Jeremiah says they're going to be there for 70 years. But as the people were off into captivity, they needed to be comforted. They needed that, that help, you know, uh, that strength. And, and it is Jeremiah that would write a letter to them saying that this is the heart of the Lord, that I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And as you call out to me, I will hear you. And as you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found. 
We also know we get the feeling of how hard it was when they would go off in, in the captivity in, in Psalm 137. I'm going to read um, the first couple of verses as the psalmist talks about them being off into captivity, longing for Zion. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remember Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? For if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So the psalmist is writing about when they're off in a captivity and, and he's saying, you know, that we just hang our harps on the willows there. Um, we're not going to play them. And, and here the Babylonians were kind of mock, mocking them saying, why don't you sing one of those songs of Zion? Why don't you sing one of those songs as they're off in the captivity? And so it was very difficult. So Isaiah here, as he is saying that comfort is going to come to you. And comfort needs to come to us as well in the days in which we're living in. Now I love what 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 tells us as Paul's writing to the Corinthians in that second letter. He says that we were pressed beyond measure. We were even despaired of life. But there is the God who is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations. And I know that tonight that there are probably some that are here that you really need God's comfort. And he's the one that will give you that comfort. He's the God that will comfort us in all of our tribulations, not some of them. Not just, you know, uh, maybe uh, partially. He's the God of all comfort in all of our tribulations. So it starts out saying, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Her warfare is in it. Her iniquity is pardoned. When I was reading that, it really was hit me this afternoon that, you know, the Bible says because of our sin, we were at enmity with God. It's like we were at war with God. But the war has ended, hasn't it? Because of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament tells us that we have peace with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because we have come to Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with the Father through him. We have forgiveness of sin as he's pardoned our iniquity. And it's good news, and that brings us comfort, doesn't it? Doesn't it comfort you to know that you belong to him and that you're forgiven and you have the hope of heaven and you have a personal relationship with the Father that comes through Jesus Christ is so wonderful and it does bring comfort because of what he has done. No longer am I at war with the Lord for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What does that mean? You can read that initially and you think, oh, you know, is the Lord talking about um, Jerusalem and because what Jerusalem did, they're going to, you know, double punishment for their sins. You got to understand the language here that that word double Double means to fold in half. It literally means that, to fold. And in ancient times, if you had a debt, what you would do is you would write that debt down. And if somebody came along to pay that debt, they would write paid in full, and then they would take that, that piece of papyrus or whatever that they wrote it on, and they would fold it in half. 
So that's what's being spoken of here. They would fold it in half, and then that covering, that debt that was paid, covers the debt that is listed there. So the Lord, the coming of Messiah, is going to come, and he's the one that's going to take away sin. And speaking of the coming of Messiah, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we know that here, verse 3, is, of course, speaking of John the Baptist as we go to the synoptic gospels that they quote here from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that John the Baptist out there in the wilderness that he is the fulfillment of what is being spoken of. That a voice of one crying in the wilderness. The religious leaders as John is out there in the desert, the Judean desert. It's hot. He's wearing camel skins. He's eating honey and locusts. And we kind of picture him as a wild looking guy, right? You know, hair all over the place. And we picture him out there, and he's yelling and screaming and kind of a wild man and, you know, maybe a locust, you know, wing stuck in his beard where he's eating, you know, honey and all of this. That's kind of the picture that we get of him. But John the Baptist, as he's out there, we know that the religious leaders, people were coming from all over Israel. They were coming all over from the Decapolis, great multitudes, to be baptized, which was a baptism of repentance. It was John that said, come repent, for, for he who is coming is, is one that is mightier than I. And he's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. He is one that I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. And he's out there in the wilderness at the Jordan River, and it's hot and dry out there. It's interesting because if you come to Israel with us, that they have that baptism place just south of the Sea of Galilee where people go and they were baptized in the Jordan River. It's a very beautiful place. When we went there last year, I think I baptized 28 people in the Jordan River. And it, it, it is a wonderful experience. But where Jesus was baptized, as we know that he came to John out there in the wilderness, and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and baptize them out there in the wilderness. They have a new place. It just opened up, and we were able to go to it. And we showed pictures of it that's out there, not far from the Dead Sea, in the wilderness there. It's hot and it's dry. And, and the Jordan River is very narrow, probably about half the width of this sanctuary, which isn't very wide. And that's the border between Israel and Jordan. What is interesting is on the Israeli side, we come, and there's a place, and there's, um, you know, a platform and a place you can go down. In the middle of the river is a rope, and that's the border. And then on the other side is the Jordanians. And people come in, and you can see the Jordanian soldiers. From here to where Jay is in the sound booth, that's where they are. And it's, it's kind of interesting. And as you look at it, and you know, you're right there on the border, but you can go and be baptized there. We don't go there because the water's real muddy and all that. And, and, uh, but that's where Jesus was probably baptized, there in the Jordan River. And he would begin his ministry. The religious leaders came out to see John the Baptist. And they said, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. He was the forerunner to Jesus. And what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Even though we have this picture, John the Baptist crying out, repent, and, 
and he rebuked the religious leaders and he, he would address the tax collectors and all the people and it was a baptism of repentance as I said uh, before and as we see very clearly in the synoptic gospels but John had a really incredible ministry and it was the multitudes that came out from all over Israel when there wasn't the internet, there wasn't TV, there wasn't radio, there wasn't satellite, you know, TV at all, any of those things. It was by word of mouth and the multitudes came out and were listening to him. And there was a great revival that was an anticipation that was taking place. But what would Jesus say about John? He said, who did you go out to see? And you remember that he's speaking about John the Baptist when John was arrested and, and sent his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus himself said concerning John the Baptist that he was the greatest born among women. You saw more than a prophet. You saw one that was greatest born among women. And he did no miracles, the Gospels tell us. That really shows us something. Because here was John the Baptist that was the greatest born among women up to that point. And when you think about it, if you would have asked me who was the greatest born among women, I would have thought, well, maybe Abraham, the father of the nation, was it Moses who led the children of Israel out into the wilderness and, and received the law? Was it, you know, David who, who killed giants? Was it Elijah that called down fire from heaven? I mean, the miracles that they saw, Moses parted the Red Sea, David slew, you know, Giants and killed Goliath. It was Elijah that called down fire from heaven. They did miracles, but John didn't do any miracles. So why was he the greatest? Think about it. Born among women, according to Jesus. Because, listen, he spoke of Jesus. He pointed to Jesus. He said, behold the Lamb of God. And the way for you and I to be great in the kingdom of God, sometimes we think, I've got to do mighty works, have the gift of healing, you know, be able to call down fire from heaven, tell mountains to be gone, you know, have a huge evangelistic ministry or teach to thousands of people, then I'll be great. No, here's how you're great in the kingdom. This here, how I can be great in the kingdom is you simply speak about Jesus. You say, behold, the Lamb of God. And he's the one that takes away the sins of the world. And even as John the Baptist, he prepared the way of the Lord that you and I, we have a ministry of John the Baptist in a way because the Lord's coming back, isn't he? And we're in the last days and we can tell people prepared because the Lord is coming back. We don't know the day or the hour. But we can have a great ministry because we're speaking about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. The other thing that it was said about John in John chapter 3 is when the crowds began to leave John out there in the wilderness and Jesus began his public ministry up in the Galilee region, that the people began to follow Jesus. The great multitudes would leave John and go to Jesus. And John's disciples were concerned about that. And it was John who said, you know, that, listen, that he must increase and I must decrease. For I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And he essentially says, I've done my ministry as the friend of the bridegroom. You see, the, the bridegroom at that time, the friend of the 
bridegroom, the one who would be kind of like the best man, they were the ones that would tell people that the bridegroom's going to get his bride. You see, in ancient Israel at that time, there, there was, we've talked about in our studies, there was the espousal period for a year, but then would come the actual wedding, and no one knew exactly when that would happen. But the bridegroom would come and, and surprise the bride and come for a bride. And we see that even in the parables that we know that, that Jesus spoke of, that, you know, be ready for the bridegroom is coming. And he would call for his bride. Well, the friend of the bridegroom would go and usher the invitation there would be a big celebration after that for maybe as many as seven days. And he would say, hey, they've gotten married. They're officially married. Come and celebrate it. It was a big deal. That was the ministry of the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. And here's John the Baptist saying, I've done that. He has come. He has come for the bride. That is you and me. He has come on the scene. And I've done my ministry. And he must increase. And I must decrease. You see, in our lives, if we want to really be used, understand this. We're the friend of the bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. But we are the friend of the bridegroom who ushers and issues that invitation to others to come, to come to him, to the bridegroom, to know that he loves you and died for you. And in our lives, if we really want to be effectively used of the Lord, then he must increase and I must decrease. And that is something when we really make that our own, that you're going to move forward in ministry with great joy and you're not going to be putting all this pressure on yourself and I got to, you know, do these miracles and I've, I've you know, got to do all these mighty works. Listen, just be a friend of the bridegroom and tell people that Jesus is coming back. And in our lives, if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, he must increase and I must decrease. I need to die to myself. I need to die to my you know, pride. I need to die to my uh, self-reliance and all of this. And I need to die to self, pick up my cross and follow him. He must increase and I must decrease. So that's how we can have a great ministry. And that's what John showed us as we uh, look at him. But here, make straight in the desert, a highway for God. Um, it reminds me of what we talked about on Sunday when it came to uh, chapter 12, verse 13 of the book of Hebrews. Remember that make straight paths for your feet uh, as uh, the writers there's is encouraging the, the, the reader of Hebrew and us because we have this book that's written for us today. And there's a path that the Lord has you on. And it's a good path. Jesus said that there's a road, there's a path that leads to eternal life, and that is him. And I think that most of us, if not all of us that are here, that we have been on that path to everlasting life, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why does the road that leads to destruction? But listen, that he has a path for you in the direction that you should go to experience that abundant life that he has for you. And great is the day when we say, I'm going to decrease, he's going to increase, and then I'm going to stay on that path that you have for me, Lord. And I'm not going to go the world's way because all of us, as we journey through life, there's going to be forks. 
And we're going to have to make a decision whether we're going to go the world's way or we're going to go God's way. The world's path or we're going to go the sinful path or we're going to go God's path. And great is the day when you say, I'm going to go the path that God wants me to go. And that's why it's so important that we study this word, uh, this book, uh, the Bible, because it tells us how to stay on that path, the straight path that God has for us. And in verse 4, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so we know that uh, as we continue because, um, you know, he's the one that makes the path for us. The crooked places he makes straight, you know, uh, the rough places he ends up making smooth. Now we do end up hitting rough spots in our lives, don't we? But it's the Lord that's going to see you through. And the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? And all flesh is grass and all its loveliness. In verse 6, it's like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and the flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. And of course, because, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, the people are like grass. The Bible says that our lives are but a vapor. Every single one of us eventually are going to fade, wither. We're going to come to the end of our lives. And we know that everything in this world is going to come to an end. The grass, you know, this poetic language that's being used is going to, going to fade away and, and the flower's going to uh, fade, the grass withers. But remember this, that the word of the Lord lasts forever. That's something that you can remind people when they come to you and say, well, we need to change the Bible. That the Bible needs to line up with culture. No, culture needs to line up with the Bible. Because the world's philosophies and ideas and ways and, and all of that is going to go away. It changes constantly, doesn't it? It's getting more weird and, and strange and confusing than ever before. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. Again, to remind you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word doesn't change. And so when we hear people say, well, we need to change the Word of God or be progressive or, you know, the Word of God needs to catch up with culture, that's all a bunch of nonsense. This world is going to go away and all the world's philosophy and all the world's way, but the Word of God is going to last forever. And that's why we place such an important emphasis on the Word of God. And O Zion, verse 9, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice and strength. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God. Remember, we talked a little bit about that on Sunday. Consider him. That's what behold means. It means to consider, to study very carefully. Behold your God. And that's what I pray that we do, that we would have this desire as we journey through life to behold him, to study him. Look at him carefully. Behold, John said, the Lamb of God. Look at him. Here he is, the one who takes away the sins of the world. A lot of times people don't really want to study 
the Lord. They don't want to study his nature, his character, his love. People will say to me, oh, I know the Lord. Do you really? You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, no, I'm not. Do you know, truly know God? So we want to make sure that we're continuing to behold him, to behold your God, who's good, who brings good tidings to us, who, who his word's going to stand forever. And in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. We've talked about how when the, the Lord, that when we go home to be with him, that there's rewards that are going to be given to us. Now, it's interesting here in verse 10, it's quoted at the very end of your Bible, uh, some of the last words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22, we read it. And Jesus um, says and quotes this um, as we have it. And let me read it to you as I turn there. And behold, I am coming quickly. This is chapter 22, verse 12. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So he's coming and he's going to come with his reward. Now, all of us, as many of you, you're familiar because we've talked about this, about rewards that are going to be given to us and what the scripture has to say because we covered it in our studies. But for some of you who may be new, that as we will stand before the Lord to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, is to be present with the Lord. But also in that chapter, it tells us that we will all stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ to receive rewards what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. So we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about being judged for our sins. But we are going to be judged for what we have done for Christ in this life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we know that our works are going to be judged by fire. And they're likened to wood, hay, and stubble, and to gold, silver, and precious metal. And all the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives are going to burn up and all the things that are, are likened to precious metals are going to shine forth. And then we're going to receive rewards for what we have done. Our motivation. And our motivation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that it's the love of Christ that constrains us or motivates us. I pray that everything that we do in ministry, whether we minister you know, to our family, we minister to others in the church, whatever and wherever God has placed you, that you do it because you love the Lord. Yes, we love people. But I know for me that my motivation, primary motivation is I love you, Lord. That's what Paul said. It's the love of Christ that constrains me, motivates me. Because here's the thing, that if I say, you know, I want to go into ministry because I want to help people and I want to minister to people and I want to teach the word of God, those are good reasons but what happens when people turn against you? What happens when somebody comes up and says, I really didn't like your teaching. It wasn't very good. What happens when people are difficult? What happens is a lot of guys end up quitting ministry or get frustrated with it. But if we go into ministry and in our lives saying, Lord, I love you and I want to please you and I want to be where you have me to minister to my children, to minister to my spouse, to minister to those at work, to minister here at church and whatever and however that God has you to, you're going to continue to do that. And that motivation for love, it isn't so I can be noticed. It isn't so I can, you know, have people pat me on the back and, and all of this is because I love you, Lord, because you love me. 
And your love for me is so incredible. I think Paul the Apostle, that the Apostle of Grace was so overwhelmed with the love of God that the Lord would save him and use him in the ministry. So we're going to be rewarded. And the Bible talks about that, the New Testament, all over the place. Jesus telling the parable, the minus, and the talents. And so, Lord, I want to be faithful to you. I want to have the right motive for serving you. It's not so I can be exalted and seen, but it's to glorify you, bring good pleasure to you. Even as Revelation chapter 4 says, we were created for his good pleasure. And Lord, I want to further the kingdom. And I just want to walk in obedience. And Lord, I want to live in your love. And whatever you have for me, I want to decrease. I want you to increase in my life. And I want to be a friend of the bridegroom. And I want to tell people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there's going to be rewards, even as Jesus said, that the time to the faithful servant, when we stand before our master, will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's our future, folks. And I long to hear those words. And I know everything on this world, the grass and the flowers going to wither and fade away. But I know that the things that we do for Christ are going to last forever. And Jesus said, you're going to rule over 10 cities and five cities. There's rewards given to us. And I've had a few people come to me and say, well, I don't care about rewards. You will then. You will then. Because Jesus gives clear indication of that. And I pray that we would prioritize him in our lives and, and having a motivation of love. And desiring to give that message to others, being used of the Lord, because he's going to reward us, and those rewards are going to last forever. And then in verse 10, it says his reward is not only with him, but his work is before him. Do you realize we're going to rule and reign with him, as we've talked about? When he ushers in his kingdom, he's got work for us that we're going to do. What exactly is that work? I don't know. You'll rule over 10 cities, 5 cities, 2 cities. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm putting my bid into Yellowstone, you know, area, because I love that area. But we'll see what happens. And whatever it is that we're going to be given responsibilities, we're going to rule and reign. Paul says in Corinthians that we're going to judge the angels. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about order in the church, and he says, and he's also talking about the problems they had, actually. He's talking about order in the church um, and he talks about the angels are watching. But then when he's talking about the problem of they were suing one another, he says, don't you know, you need to settle this within the church. Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? And I read that and I think, wow, what does that mean? I don't think it means that we're going to say you're a good angel, you're a lazy angel, you know, or whatever. We're going to use them for his purposes. You know, we're, we're going to, you know, maybe dispatch angels to go do this or whatever. But we're going to rule and reign with him. Listen, we got a wonderful future. And when I think about that, you know, I don't get too attached to this world. Because it's going to fade and it's going to wither. And I want to keep priority heaven. And that's what I pray that we do. And as I'm looking for the Lord, I'm not going to get, you know, caught up in the stuff and the junk and, of the world that just derails me and defiles me. But Lord, I'm going to stand before you. And I want to be the faithful servant for you. 
And I know that you've got to work for me. Now I'm going to end at verse 11 here. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That is the encouraging, comforting words that we see that Isaiah is going to continue to give us as we go through the second part of this book. And, you know, I almost don't want to comment on this because it's so wonderful what we read. He's going to feed his flock like a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, John chapter 10. He's the great shepherd, Hebrews chapter 13. And he's the chief shepherd. And he's the one that... His sheep know his voice. And we're in the shepherd's hand, right? And he says, no one's going to pluck you out. The tender, good shepherd, David says that, you know, that he is the good shepherd. And we know that he's the shepherd that leads us to green pastures, right? And besides the still water. So coming back as the chapter started comforting that perhaps as we go to the Lord, that you're saying, Lord, I just need the green pastures and I need this lie beside the still waters. I need that comfort in my life. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. He is the one that is the great shepherd that's going to come back for us and we're going to be with him for all eternity. He's with us now. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you for these comforting words that are here. And I thank you that we can look at this. There's no other shepherd. You are the true shepherd, the good shepherd. You are our shepherd. And, Lord, as we started the chapter speaking about comfort, that perhaps there are those here that they need your comfort and whatever it is that they're facing. We all need you, Lord, your strength and your wisdom and your guidance to be on that path that you have us on. But Lord, bring us to the still waters, beside the still waters, as David would say, to lead us to the green pastures. We want to be fed by you. We want to be in your loving arms. Lord, we want to be nurtured by you. We know that you will keep us safe because you're the shepherd that guards us. And so, Lord, may we just continue to stay close to you. And Lord, I thank you for these comforting words given to us. And Lord, we want to have a ministry of telling people about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, because we know that he's coming back, and we want to prepare people for when he does come back. And even as we're going to read in Hebrews that the one who tarries will tarry no longer and he shall come. And we know that to be true. So Father, help us to just continue on with you, to keep our eyes on you, to love you, and everything that we do for you in this life is we're motivated by your love for us. So Lord, may we marvel at it Father, I thank you that we're here tonight. And I pray that, that everyone here has embraced the gospel. And maybe there's somebody here that you've never, you're, you're hearing about the good shepherd and Jesus coming back and all of this. This is new. But I want you to know that Jesus came and died for your sin. We're no longer at war with God as we come to Christ. 
because our sin has separated us from him. And the wages of sin is death, but Jesus came and died for you. That's why he came, the Son of God, to die for your sins, that you might be forgiven and have access and relationship with the Father and to be able to have the hope of heaven. He rose from the grave as they, they put him in that tomb, but he conquered sin and death. And he uniquely did that for you. So if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, he is your salvation. There is none other. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you can receive him into your heart right now by praying that Jesus, I come and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I confess I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again. You're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. To know you. To walk with you. And Lord, I thank you for this, this new beginning. I thank you for bringing me here. And I thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray if anybody prayed that prayer, whether they're listening on live stream or maybe here. If you're here, come up and tell the prayer team that's going to be here in just a minute as we close. Lord, that you would, um, that you would come and tell them the decision you made so we can bless you. But for all of us that need prayer tonight, that we wouldn't be afraid to receive that prayer. Lord, take everyone home safely tonight. Lord, bless the rest of our week and this weekend coming up and again as we head into a holiday week. Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. And Lord, keep us safe. And Lord, beside the still waters, just that quietness and assurance in our hearts and in our souls that you're with us, that you love us. And Lord, that you do gather us into your arms, carry us in your bosom, and you gently lead us. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?